From a systemic level, I think we're, you know, we're, we're not at a passing grade. We, we weren't at a passing grade um, uh, 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and we've changed certain aspects of the system, uh, but we're still, I think, failing in some of the most basic uh, ways to make the, our system of justice really understandable, welcoming, uh, and navigable by the public. I'm Jack Newton, CEO of Clio, and this is the Daily Matters podcast. On Daily Matters, we talk with legal professionals, industry leaders, and subject matter experts about the future of law. We explore where the legal industry is headed, how legal practice is changing, and what you can be doing to position yourself for success. Today's guest is Mark O'Brien. Mark is the co-founder and executive director of Pro Bono Net, a national nonprofit that increases access to justice for the poor and other vulnerable populations through innovative uses of technology, collaboration, and volunteer mobilization. Mark, it's great to have you here. Uh, great to be here. Thanks a lot, Jack. Mark, I'd like to start off uh, asking what is on your mind most right now? Uh, well, I think like most people here in the U.S. and probably across the world, um, really taking in uh, and uh, processing the events of the last couple of weeks here in the U.S., uh, sparked by the you know, horrific killing of George Floyd and the recognition of the connection of that to a whole series of uh, brutalities and killings in the back community um, by the police, but also how that underlines uh, the impact of systemic racism in the United States um, has been very top of mind, both processing, being outraged, grieving with the people most directly affected, but then also watching and thinking about how to participate in the pretty remarkable response that we've seen, uh, as I said, across the US, uh, here where I am in Brooklyn, but across um, the country and across the world uh, uh, has, has really been kind of top of mind for me. And, and we'll talk a bit more about that and how it relates to the pro bono net mission, but I'd like to start off maybe just getting a common foundation for our, our listeners in terms of understanding what what Pro Bono Net is. Can you tell us a little bit more about the founding story of Pro Bono Net and how the organization works to increase access to justice? Sure. Uh, so we go, we're going back a ways. Um, Pro Bono Net has, we just uh, celebrated our 20th anniversary. So, uh, You've got to bring Congratulations. your mind back. Yeah, thank you. In it's a long the early time. days of, of the web and a very different uh, state of what technology actually could accomplish in the legal sector. I had been working uh, for about six or so years at one of the large law firms in New York at Davis Polk, where I was. Davis Polk was one of the first firms to have a sort of full time person managing and facilitating and running their pro bono program. Uh, and it had been my pleasure to do that work. Um, uh, and it was tremendously gratifying work, but also work that exposed me to some of the inefficiencies of the legal aid delivery system and some of the lack of capacity within that sector to um, 
to really not just uh, accomplish what each organization was trying to accomplish, but really think about how they would scale uh, access to legal services, access to justice. Um, and so uh, I was very lucky that uh, someone that I knew, Michael Hertz, who my co-founder, Michael was a partner at Latham and Watkins, and we knew each other from working on pro bono cases together, uh, political asylum uh, work. Um, and I was working at Davis Polk really beginning to use technology to promote uh, pro bono and to assist in sort of knowledge management around pro bono within the firm and how we communicated with the organizations that we were trying to support. And Michael came to me with a sort of larger idea about really taking a look at where there were ways that these emerging technologies could be uh, deployed in ways that could kind of create new capacity within the nonprofit legal sector and really importantly, create some incentives for folks to think more about building collaborative approaches, uh, really thinking about sector-wide capacity, not just what does each individual organization need to be successful, but um, ways in which the technology could incentivize collaboration across those groups and with different sectors like the private sector through pro bono, with the courts, with other human services and, 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 other, and other groups that are so uh, really vital in uh, sort of justice being lived in communities as opposed to just in courtrooms. And tell us a little bit more about this. I guess you can think about pro bono net working at, at the nexus of these various elements of technology collaboration and volunteer mobilization to really drive its uh, its impact. Can you tell us a bit more about what maybe the the key insight was about the the way that Pro Bono Net could approach this problem and how that's manifested in terms of what Pro Bono Net is doing today? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the key insight um, would really be that even though we were very focused on what technology could do and what uh, providing greater technology capacity in the sector could do, we really tried to focus on really human capacity and human needs and really think about how that technology was deployed in ways that it was not, you know, replacing or supplanting what it was that humans were doing, but both for uh, organizations that were delivering legal services, uh, but also for uh, the public, for their clients, how the technology could uh, really give them greater agency in uh, resolving the problems that they have, allow them to work better, to better understand their rights. I mean, for Pro Bono Net, I would say, you know, we came, as our name suggests, out of a pretty laser focus in the early days, really around the pro bono uh, sector, how to get more private attorneys involved in working with legal aid organizations. Over time, our work, while still retaining a large part that is focused on uh, pro bono attorneys and advocates more generally at legal aid organizations um, has really uh, shifted to really focus on uh, the public and think about how technology can deploy. So we, we operate a number of programs and a number of platforms that um, uh, provide tools that are used by the public uh, to under better find information, 
to understand what their rights are, to know who are the legal organizations that, that, that can uh, help them if they need uh, a lawyer, but also to engage in self-help. And can you tell us about a few of the specific populations, just to make that, that concrete mark, uh, a few of the specific populations that you, you work with within the public and, and how you help them access legal resources and, and maybe even help them recognize that they have a legal issue that, that can be supported with, with legal help? Sure. Uh, it's, a, it's a pretty broad. We work, our, the platforms that we've developed uh, on the sort of attorney-facing side, much of it branded under probono.net. Uh, on the consumer-facing side, a lot of it, uh, there are about 20 states that use our law help platform to provide a statewide uh, legal information for the public websites and access to um, uh, finding legal aid programs, finding Know Your Rights content, the best of breed content from the nonprofit sector, but also finding tools for help, self-help. So online document assembly tools, interactive interviews that would help them uh, prepare to defend themselves in a, an eviction case or to uh, file for custody or for an order of protection or to simply write a, land, a letter to a debtor or to a landlord um, uh, outside of a court proceeding, but uh, assert and advocate for their rights. Um, and we deploy those in partnership with uh, a pretty broad group of partners, legal aid organizations, courts, uh, bar-based uh, uh, access to justice programs, public libraries. Um, we, so it, it pretty much covers the, the, the waterfront of civil legal uh, needs. So a lot of it focused on family law, domestic violence, consumer debt, housing, uh, the areas of life where the lives of poor people are more likely to be regulated and come in contact with the courts. Um, we have a large emphasis uh, in the immigration space early on, as I mentioned, Michael and my own engagement in pro bono very much came out of our work in the political asylum area. And we've developed over the last 12 years or so a pretty broad-based collaboration with some of the major national immigrants' rights organizations and uh, networks of immigrants-serving uh, organization, rights organizations uh, on a program which uh, we call the Immigration Advocates Network, which has both helped those partners scale the training and technical assistance they do to a very diverse uh, set of uh, immigrant-serving organizations around the country, but also to create tools uh, like uh, we have a program called Citizenship Works, which is an online platform that allows someone to come in, understand using expert system tools, whether they're eligible for citizenship, to actually go through uh, interactive interviews that can be uh, either in English or the interviews translated into Spanish or Chinese that provide them contextual help to prepare their own uh, uh, petitions for naturalization, but also to access our network of partners around the country who are available uh, to do legal consultations, both online, but also in their brick and mortar offices to help people not only be able to access, but be successful in using these tools to actually vindicate their rights, to get the benefits that they're applying for, 
Um, so it's a pretty broad-based uh, group of partnerships. Absolutely. And the ecosystem is obviously one that is fairly complex. There's, there's so many legal aid organizations. There's, there's so many stakeholders uh, that you, you need to, to navigate. Can you just describe, maybe for those that are less familiar with, with what the, the flow of a typical pro bono case, case might look like, uh, and, and how the pro bono net platforms are are helping connect volunteer lawyers with uh, with the cases that might be hitting these legal aid organizations and maybe other places that you see that touch point with the the public. Sure. So I think our partners have sort of used the technology to enhance their programs in a in a number of different ways. Some of it is very transactionally. Um, based around being able to advertise pro bono cases and opportunities, match them with volunteers who have expressed interest and have sort of validated they have experience in different um, uh, areas of law uh, that match with the client's needs and to do that better matching. But a lot of it also then has to do with the sort of longer term engagement of volunteers, thinking about what are the uh, training resources, access to mentors, to listservs, to be able to share experiences and uh, both uh, learn from experts and really do peer-to-peer -peer, um, uh, support. Um, uh, so whether whether it's being used by our partners actually to do that case matching and and handing a case to a volunteer uh, in some jurisdictions, that's really an important part of what they're, of, of, of the challenges that they're trying to overcome. In other places, it's much more about what's the ongoing ability to provide training and support and expertise to their volunteers um, and to um, uh, do that in ways that not just one organization can do that, but either geographically around given subject areas of law, it can be like with the immigration area nationally, uh, online platforms can be done to, uh, to provide that capacity building and support uh, cross organizationally. And Mark, one of the things you talked about is, is helping eliminate friction and, and support lawyers that want to become volunteer lawyers and help engage with pro pro bono cases. And uh, over the course of the last, few months with uh, events around the world over the last few weeks as well. We've seen, uh, I think so many lawyers put up their hands saying, I want to help out with these causes, but especially among solo and small firm lawyers that, that maybe don't have the benefit of a, a pro bono counsel that you might have in a larger law firm. Mm -hmm. They're at a loss for, for how to engage and, and, and how to start giving back to the community through pro bono support. Can you describe some of the ways that the, average lawyer in a solo small firm situation can engage in pro bono work? Sure. I mean, I, I think the first thing we have to do is sort of recognize that, you know, on the one hand, times of emergent need point to the importance of broadening participation mm -hmm. and in getting more lawyers engaged in doing pro bono work. Uh, Absolutely. It, it's also a time when it's, you know, almost hardest for the legal aid organizations that are have the relationships on the ground with clients and are trying to uh, grapple and think about how they scale 
um, uh, their services um, uh, for them to, to actually stand up systems. And um, so some of it, I think, has to do with uh, those opportunities are to sort of know the organizations that are in your community. Um, uh, this will not be the last time <laughs> that we uh, have uh, emergent need. Um, some of it is to take the long view. There are opportunities. Uh, uh, there are, you know, whether it's through Pro Bono Net, whether it's through some of the terrific work that the ABA, in partnership with Paladin and Clio and other st uh, state bar partners, have been doing to stand up uh, online portals to aggregate access to information about how to get engaged. Uh, but I think as in any other area that a lawyer is thinking of practicing, it's thinking about, uh, well, what do I need in order to be competent and be able to, you know, help in this area? So some of it is about, you know, getting yourself trained up, making, getting yourself familiarized, engage, uh, develop local relationships uh, with organizations, uh, and look for ways to support them uh, uh, in, in whatever ways you can in this time and out of those relationships, find opportunities to, uh, to more deeply engage. And Mark, maybe speaking about access to justice more, more broadly for a moment, it, it, you've obviously, been, you and Pro Bono Net have been working on this for over 20 years. It, it, it's obviously a cause that, uh, you believe in deeply. I, I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about what's, you know, driving you to st stay engaged in this mission for such a sustained period of time. And maybe if you look at the trajectory of the last 20 years, do you see access to justice improving or worsening? And if, if you had to give it a letter grade even in terms of what access to justice looks like for the average citizen today, what would you give it? And, and, and as I mentioned, has that gotten better or actually deteriorated over the course of the, the 20 years that Pro Bono Net's been at work? Um, uh, big question. That is a big um, question. I think, you know, for me, I think uh, in what keeps me uh, engaged in this work is, is I mean, as, as I think I said at the beginning, you know, for me, I actually think that the law is very important uh, in ensuring that people are able to live their lives, to remove the barriers that would keep them from fully participating in society, to make sure that their families, their livelihoods are protected when they uh, meet, you know, whether it's economic, political, social, other challenges. Um, and so it's really the connection of the law to lived experience of people is what drives me to be involved in this work. I think what has kept me in the work over such an extended period of time, and I'll tell you when I first started out, Michael and I both thought, well, we're gonna take a leave of absence from our law firms for a couple of years. We'll, you know, we'll be back. Uh, it's actually been the, the, the richness of the canvas and recognizing that uh, it isn't about creating you know, one app that's going to solve everybody's problems. But again, thinking about that human capacity, it's actually thinking about as technology evolves, as the challenges evolve, how are we engaging a group of actors within the civil legal aid space, the courts, broader human and social services that are trying to improve 
the lives of low-income and vulnerable mm -hmm. people? How can we be involved actually in a dialogue to help them understand how to be participants in how that technology will be used, shaped, uh, customized for the needs of the communities that they're trying to, to serve? Um, and that is just tremendously uh, exciting work. You know, you, you mentioned the, you asked about the folks that, the communities that we work with, uh, mm -hmm. the people who we, who we work with. In some, it is the public. A, a lot of our partnerships and a lot of our direct engagement is with partner organizations, legal aid programs, immigrants rights groups around the country. And, you know, one of the things that has been really uh, kind of eye-opening in this is that a lot of us think about innovation being, you know, very much driven at the tech-rich coasts and the, the hubs of, um, uh, of the new tech sectors. You know, where what we've really found is that a lot of the innovation, the drive to think about how to use technology, how to change my organization's capacity has actually come from some of our partners in rural and remote communities, uh, communities like Montana, Iowa, Alaska, Puerto Rico, uh, where organizations have been, you know, under-resourced, have really understood the need to think about uh, their role in their communities as very tied into the other uh, human and uh, social service uh, actors who are often needing to think about providing um, services over really far-flung geographic distance. The, the catchment district in Montana is you know, 900 miles. I could leave my front door in Brooklyn and, and, and drive to Chicago practically by the time right. I heard. And with a small staff, it has actually caused a lot of those partners to be really sort of creative and inventive about thinking not just what technology, what's the exciting technology, but how does this, you know, increase the capacity of our staff? How does it allow us to do more? How does it allow our clients to be better prepared, uh, better informed, whether they're going to be engaging in self-help or whether they're going to be, you know, before you're going to drive an hour uh, to uh, Montana Legal Services office, you know, what would be the value of doing a remote live chat right. with someone who could, we, we have a service that we introduced actually in Montana and uh, Iowa a little over 10 years ago called Live Help. Uh, I mean, it's the idea of just as you could on any commercial website, can you click on a button and could you, you know, engage with somebody who wasn't gonna solve your legal problem, but was gonna be a navigator through the site could help you figure out what's there. Are you looking in the right place? And thinking not about uh, how do you use that technology, but how you think about what's the, how do you build the human capacity in organizations at the legal aid sector? And who is it that would do that? Is it the intake workers? Is it volunteer law students? And how would you train and scale that kind of capacity? Um, those have been the, partnerships and in some ways have been most surprising. You know, early on, in a, a, we came into, as I said, early in a period where when, when Michael and I first started talking about the a vision of pro bono net, a lot of people said to us, look, you know, our clients are never going to use the web. Uh, lawyers will never share. Right. And, you know, those 
the march of time and history of taking care of those problems, we didn't have to take care of those problems. And we're actually now finding that, you know, the ambition and the challenges that our partners are coming to us with are, you know, really sophisticated and really exciting um, to uh, try and participate in, in creating those solutions. And, and the grave. And, and I'd be curious to, to see, you've obviously, and Pro Bononet have done so much through these, these projects and platforms to increase access to justice, but you've also seen over the course of the 20 years, the macro environment change in so many ways and right. uh, technology maybe helping uh, increase access to justice in some regards, but maybe other structural changes uh, actually worsening it. So I'm, I'm curious what your your high level perspective is maybe on, on what the grade would be today right. and, and what, what the grade would be circa 2000 when, when you founded Pro Bono Net. Yeah. Um, that arc of justice is, is long. <laughs> um, I'm a tough grader uh, about our own work and accomplishments, but I think even in thinking about that question, I think you sort of have to separate a little bit out looking at the sort of the people in the justice system. And, yep. uh, you know, I have huge regard and admiration, not just across the legal services and advocacy sector, but within the courts, you know, people who are doing really heroic work, uh, empathetic work to think about how uh, they open up access to their systems and how they really become, you know, client and people-centered and think about reshaping their services to meet human needs. From a systemic level, I think we're, you know, we're, we're not at a passing grade. We, we weren't at a passing grade um, uh, 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and we've changed certain aspects of the system, uh, but we're still, I think, failing in some of the most basic uh, ways to make the our system of justice really understandable, welcoming, uh, and navigable by the public. Um, the 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 DC courts who we work with on a number of these sort of online document assembly and other initiatives, you know, they have a like a fantastic um, uh, a slogan. Um, uh, which I'm now going to mangle, but it's basically like, uh, you know, open to all, uh, understandable to all, they got a better word for that, and justice for all. Yeah. And I really think that those, uh, those really do go together um, uh, in ways that can be quite powerful while still recognizing that, you know, there are the systems that the, and the basic, you know, economic and social uh, uh, system that our courts are, you know, uh, built out of and enforcing uh, are in many ways, uh, you know, not friendly to and not uh, at a, at a, not just procedural justice level, but actually at a, you know, substantive justice level are not uh, friendly to and supportive of the needs of uh, uh, low income and marginalized people. So Mark, we've been talking a lot about the correlation between access to justice uh, and, and some of the opportunities to improve access to justice and some of the systemic inequities and injustices faced by people of color in America, especially the, the black community. Can you address that 
from your perspective, the, the vantage point you've got over the last 20 years and, and so much of what you see in, in pro bono access around what some of those systemic inequities are and what our path to address some of those might look like? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it, it in many ways comes out of obviously the, our country's history mm -hmm. uh, and our, uh, the systems, the economic and social systems that I mentioned before that our justice system uh, is so intricately interlaced with. Mm -hmm. um, and those have a disproportionate uh, impact on the regulation of the lives of uh, uh, low-income, vulnerable uh, populations, and disproportionately on Black, uh, immigrant, people of color, uh, and other ethnic minorities in this country. Um, so I think that, that I mean, I come at what the implications of that are in a couple of different ways. For us as an organization, it has to do with, you know, the problem spaces that we decide to sort of lean into and engage with, uh, sometimes that are directly addressing uh, those in uh, both legal and uh, community organizing uh, contexts. And our work in the immigration space certainly goes to that. Um, partnerships with civil rights organizations, uh, emerging partnership that we have with Law for Black Lives. But it also, I think, comes to recognizing what are the obligations that we have to listen to and engage in uh, the both framing of the problem and the framing of solutions with uh, those communities that have been disproportionately impacted. Um, by systemic racism, by uh, s other social uh, economic inequalities in our in our system. So, you know, I, I think that we're never going to, uh, you know, address those questions unless we broaden the participation in the solution building. And Mark, to conclude our conversation, I'd love to, to spend a moment talking about technology, which I, I think we've seen over the course of the last few months with, with COVID-19, uh, the, the pace of technological change in legal is accelerating. I think many of us, including myself, hope uh, and are optimistic that this rapid adoption of technology everywhere from individual law firms moving to the cloud in a more distributed way of working to the courts embracing systems like Zoom for for remote hearings and trials will actually do a lot to increase access to justice and, and do a lot to increase diversity and representation in even juries and, and, and so on. Um, what are some of your thoughts on the, the impact technology can have in terms of increasing access to, to justice and enabling uh, better delivery of pro bono services um, and, and maybe what trends you might see COVID-19 as, as accelerating that we're already underway? Yeah, I, th I think um, that, that's definitely true. Um, I think that uh, technology uh, kind of, there are opportunities in a number of different areas. And one of them is just in, as we, again, as we, if we, take the answer to the question from what are the capacity gaps and what are the mm -hmm. 
challenges that humans have in actually accessing the system. And it has to do with, um, uh, you know, there are language barriers, there are geographic distance barriers, which the social distancing uh, regimes have certainly uh, reinforced um, access to information. And so at the first level, I feel where technology has made a huge impact is really in allowing us to rethink strategies for uh, basic rights information to be shared and for uh, tools for self-help. As I was saying, uh, we operate a national online document assembly system, Law Help Interactive, which is used by legal aid programs and courts to make uh, court forms available. Part of the work that has gone into creating those, uh, those interviews has been to think through, uh, well, how do we provide contextual help so that make sure that people understand the challenges that they're facing? Can we make those instructions? Can we make those available multilingually? Uh, can we make them available and think about how we would uh, provide us uh, not just uh, um, use cases where people can use them on their own, but could we think about providing remote consultations and support uh, consultations either by phone or by online meeting with uh, lawyers and others um, uh, to help people uh, to ensure that they've filled out the forms right, but also to talk through them kind of strategic questions that they need to think about if they're going to use these documents to sort of assert their rights. Um, it's also uh, in the pro bono area. I think we're just getting to the place using the tools as the tools that times of tools, the tools we're using now have become ubiquitous and the comfort level of people in using them uh, has become greater. Uh, we're now uh, beginning to uh, see systems stood up and uh, pro bono and it is doing this in a number of jurisdictions to sort of combine uh, remote uh, online video where you don't have to download. It's all browser based and mm -hmm. somebody can use their cell phone. Uh, clients can use their cell phone to access it. Can they uh, get access after they've used an interactive form to do an online video consultation with a lawyer uh, to be able to do uh, that um, video consultation along with screen sharing, along with uh, document sharing, really allows us to think about new models of delivering services and new models of engaging volunteers who are going to spend less of their time having to travel down to the courthouse or travel to the legal aid right. program, but can from their desktop, uh, and we're working with partners in New York with Legal Information for Families Today, which has been engaging uh, uh, both corporate law department volunteers and law firm volunteers to provide remote consultations to um, litigants in family court to help them through, help them prepare for hearings, to help them prepare documents that they'll need to then go and advocate for themselves. So there are um, huge opportunities. Uh, and what I think is really exciting is the idea that those can be really crafted to to engage a broader set of actors. One of the things that I think that we've been, um, you know, most impressed by uh, when we've talked with some of the end users of our systems, uh, when we've talked to immigrants who are 
young, young immigrants at the time, but the DACA program, the Deferred Action for Child mm -hmm. Arrivals program was available. Uh, and we were looking to stand up systems that would guide people through that process. And we talked to uh, people who had successfully accessed services to understand, well, how did you look for this? How did you find the services that, how did you understand what your need was? And one of the things that we learned was really the importance. Uh, we, we tend to think in the legal profession of this sort of binary. It's the, yeah. the lawyers and it's the clients. And what are the things that are going to help us do our work? And what are the help things that are going to help them do it themselves? But there's actually this opportunity to think about using the technology to engage what we like to think of as a much broader set of justice actors, who some of them are in formal institutions. They may be teachers. They may be librarians. They may be, you know, healthcare or social service agencies that are going to be the gateways and access points um to these services uh and also can be assisting to make people sure that not only these tools are available but that they are uh, used successfully and so we've seen huge opportunity in thinking about how technology can actually be used to build delivery models that are uh more supportive of people being successful in using them and don't rely only on the specialized knowledge and training of attorneys, which is obviously hugely important and fundamental uh, to making sure that the legal know-how and the mm -hmm. analysis that goes into these tools is valid, uh, but doesn't necessarily have to involve them uh, in the successful uh, vindication of people's rights. Right. And it, feel, it feels like unlocking that capacity is so foundational to creating the, the supply side of helping people navigate legal services. Um, well, amazing perspective on the technology impacts and what we can anticipate over both the, the short and long term mark. Um, to conclude, I, I'd love your perspective uh, on or, or maybe call to action for our listeners in terms of if they want to get involved with uh, pro bono, if they want to help improve access to justice, where can they find out more about uh, pro bono net and, and who else that's listening might want to reach out to pro bono net and find out how pro bono net can, can help them with improving access to justice. Uh, sure. Well, <clears throat> our name is our URL <laughs> pro bono.net. Um, uh, I would encourage folks, whether they are, uh, you know, lawyers looking to find out what is the ecosystem in my community. Uh, there are tools through our site that you can find to connect with legal aid programs that are looking for volunteers. Uh, you can connect to how to uh, access training that will help prepare you to get engaged. Uh, you can join an online community of other uh, uh, public interest lawyers, whether they work in the private sector or in legal aid organizations, become part of the community and engage. Uh, we partner as much as we do with legal, we partner with legal technology companies and others around thinking about how the tools that they've developed can be mm -hmm. uh, successfully deployed and used. So always interested from hearing from folks in that space. But I think my most uh, like baseline, um, you know, exhortation would be to engage. 
you know, there's a lot of focus on sort of the, the, the need to change the system, the, whether that's going to be done through entrepreneurs or intrapreneurs. I think we can all find a way to engage in uh, the need to change our approaches, to need to engage in understanding how our clients, how our partners uh, can get more out of how they work with us through mm. innovative practices that may involve technology, but they may also just involve, you know, human systems. Uh, and I would just encourage people to engage at that level and find their right path. That's great, Mark. Uh, thanks so much for joining us today. Really enjoyed our conversation and keep up the amazing work you and your team are doing at Pro Bono Net. Oh, thank you. And thank you for the opportunity and really just kudos on the terrific work that you and your team are doing to keep this dialogue going. It's much needed and really refreshing. And uh, I take a lot from the podcast that I've watched. So thank you. Thank you for that. I appreciate that. Thanks for joining us on Daily Matters, a podcast from Clio. Rate and review wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Daily Matters is produced by Andrew Booth, Sam Rosenthal, and Derek Bolin, and hosted by yours truly, Jack Newton. Thanks also to Clio, the world's leading cloud-based legal technology provider for supporting this podcast.